from the creator economy to the end of Bretton Woods and the origins of the metaverse. This is the UAE Tech Podcast Web3 edition. Tune in for cutting edge interviews on how blockchain is reshaping cyberspace, finance and culture from here in Dubai and cities around the world. Modern banking is broken. Um, it's not It's not working. It's not acting in the interests of the people. It's not sustainable. And there's a real risk that the whole system uh, can collapse. And ultimately, greater recessions and people's livelihoods and, and quality of life will deteriorate. The main issue with modern banking is over, especially the last sort of 30 years, and, and over the last 20 years in the um, European economic area, the number of banks has halved. So you've got this concentrating effect on the banking system where these big banks are buying up the smaller banks. You know, they're, they're, they're profitable, um, they're in good locations, they've got a good portfolio, so they'll buy up the smaller banks. But the problem is, because it becomes then part of the big bank, it starts operating as a big bank. So you've got fewer and fewer small banks helping these small businesses, helping these communities. Instead, you've got these big banks that are only focusing on big businesses, PE firms, uh, financial speculators, governments, um, and the like. So there's no banks anymore, really, that are there to cater for small businesses. According to Oliver Studd, during the height of the financial crisis in Germany, it was locally owned community banks that didn't need a bailout. For Oliver and his team at Valhalla Network, we will always need banks and access to banking services. Now this isn't to argue that either in their current state are fit for service. In fact, this episode begins with a blistering introduction into how a modern bank actually works and it isn't always pretty. But what if the future of banking wasn't simply decentralized or distributed, but local and geographically restricted, as well as community ran? In a way, it's counterintuitive. Most DAO projects, for example, aim to create organizational structures across borders, allowing team members to collaborate and get paid virtually. For Valhalla, global problems actually start locally, particularly when it comes to small businesses and reforming the modern bank. Tune in for background on the electronic alchemy of current accounting systems, a stark warning on CBDCs, an alternative future in which local banks might actually still exist. Today we're talking to Oliver Studd from Valhalla Network. Oliver, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to have you on the UAE Tech Podcast. Um, Obviously, we want to find out more about you and more about Valhalla Network, but I thought an interesting thing to do, given that we've discussed this a lot on the series, might be to jump straight in and ask you, what is wrong with modern banking? Is it broken? <laughs> and if so, why? <laughs> Excellent. Thanks, John. Really appreciate you inviting me on. Um, it's good to speak with you. Um, so it's a good question to start with. Yeah, you know, you're really going in at the deep end. Um so where to start? Well, modern banking is broken. Um, it's not it's not working. It's not acting in the interests of the people. It's not sustainable. And there's a real risk that the whole system uh, can collapse. And 
ultimately greater recessions and people's livelihoods and, and quality of life will deteriorate. The main issue with modern banking is over, especially the last sort of 30 years and, and over the last 20 years in the um, European economic area, the number of banks has halved. So you've got this concentrating effect on the banking system where these big banks are buying up the smaller banks. You know, they're, they're, they're profitable, um, they're in good locations, they've got a good portfolio, so they'll buy up the smaller banks. But the problem is, because it becomes then part of the big bank, it starts operating as a big bank. So you've got fewer and fewer small banks helping these small businesses, helping these communities. Instead, you've got these big banks that are only focusing on big businesses, PE firms, uh, financial speculators, governments, um, and the like. So there's no banks anymore, really, that are there to cater for small businesses. The impact this has on the system is, and then, you know, difficulty is where do I, I need to sort of introduce credit creation. Um, so banks are very different to what they're thought of in modern textbooks and what central banks like to say banks are, mm. what mainstream um, economists are taught at the leading universities. Banks are being taught as financial intermediaries. While I was at HSBC um, in my introduction week, an external speaker came in uh, to teach everyone about banks and what banks are. And the first slide was banks are financial intermediaries. And I thought, I'm not having any of this. <laughs> uh, um, so I put my hand up, asked a question and said, how can this possibly be true when uh, when the central bank in 2014, the Bank of England has admitted that banks aren't cred uh, financial intermediaries and um, in an empirical test by Professor Richard Werner has, has proved it. And, and this guy didn't have a clue what I was talking about. He was just doing what he was told and, and just trying to teach everyone this, this rubbish. But in reality, banks are much more special than just financial intermediaries. Financial intermediaries are purely people in the center who move money from one person's account to another. And that's what banks are thought of. They take deposits and they lend your deposit out to someone else. And the margin on that is, is effectively the bank's profit. However, they're much more like wizards. <laughs> um, they have much greater impact on your everyday life. Banks create money out of thin air. They're the creators of money in society. 90 to 95% of the money is created by the banking system, not by the central bank. Only about 5% is created by the central bank directly, and no money is created by the governments. So the impact this has is if banks are creating money for the wrong purposes, it's going to cause some problems in the economy. So there's two types of ultimate credit creation. You've got productive credit creation and unproductive credit creation. And this can be split further into um, credit that's created for the real economy and credit that's created for the financial economy. So credit that is created for financial economy includes um, asset, asset bubbles and any, any money that flows into asset purchases. This doesn't impact GDP. It's not a part of the real economy. And all this does is it causes asset prices to increase in value, to speculate, and then you get bubbles. And this has happened time and time again. Um, Japan in the 80s uh, was a classic one before the 90s recession, uh, where the banks were just pumping money, uh, lots of money into the housing market um, and causing asset price, prices to soar. And that's very unproductive. So um, ultimately, you're going to get a, a bubble that bursts because the banks can no longer keep lending all this money out and creating all this money um, for the asset prices to increase. So at some point, the asset prices are going to collapse. 
which hurts banks. Um, ultimately, it causes banks to have bad debt on their balance sheet. Um, their balance sheet is to look very unhealthy and some sort of bailout is required. And we can go into bailouts later. Um, there's the other type, which is credit for real economy. So credit that's being created for real economy. So as I said, there's two types, um, credit for financial economy and credit for real economy. This includes any transaction that's related to GDP. Now, of course, not every transaction that's related to GDP is productive. So you can split that GDP-related transaction into productive and unproductive credit. So productive credit is credit that is used to create new income streams or to create new goods that can be sold to pay off the loan. So it's something that can be used productively to generate some sort of income that can be used to service the loan and repay the loan. The impact this has is you get GDP growth, but you get no inflation. You get absolutely no inflation because all that credit that is being created is then being repaid and destroyed by the bank once it's repaid by those small businesses or by the businesses that are being productive. Then you've got the other type of credit creation, the unproductive credit creation in the GDP transactions, and that can be credit for consumption. So if, and this happened um, from the 2020, and um, very recently, huge amounts of credit creation for people to consume more goods and more services. Now, of course, this is unproductive. It's not producing more goods. It's not producing more services. People can't really repay those loans because they're not creating anything with it. They're just spending the money. The problem this has is you get bad debts because the debts aren't repaid. You get GDP growth, yes, but only because of all the inflation. So the GDP growth is due to the inflation. So you get huge amounts of consumer price inflation. So it's unproductive. So the current banking system, as it concentrates, you get more and more of this unproductive credit creation, whether it's through the financial economy, so credit for the financial purposes, or whether it's just credit for consumption, which has happened very recently. Small, small banks instead, though, tend to lend for productive purposes. They lend to the small businesses because overall small businesses are much more productive than big businesses. For every one pound that is created and lent to a small business, it's much more productive. You've got more people employed by the small businesses in the UK, uh, well, in, in all economies across the world. Um, over two thirds of people are in, employed by small businesses. Um, it's much more productive and it means that the economy is healthy. It can grow without the inflation. So as this concentrating banking system happens and the banks all grow bigger and bigger, this productive credit creation is slowed down, it's reduced, and instead you get a lot of unproductive credit creation, which results in these recessions, bank crises, um, and the like. So that's the current sort of problem in the banking system. Wow, really well put as well. There's a lot there, and thank you for that breakdown, which... Um... You know, we're going to have to uh, we're going to have to use that soundbite on 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 some of what you just described. Really good overview, um, case study on on how you see what's going on with the banking. Um, there's some points there on, for example, inflation or um, you know credit for GDP and and credit for production. That reminds me a little bit about of uh, Maria Mazzucato and some of her writing about the the financial industries, but. Um, what jumps out most is this idea, of course, that, you know, usually it's crypto and DeFi that are seen as a form of sorcery, a form of alchemy, a form of fake value creation. And <laughs> what you seem to be saying is, um, put, put that aside, there's also a little bit of alchemy and sorcery going on at the very heart of our banking system. Um, now I know, uh, 
this year you gave a talk to the House of Lords on the two types of DeFi and your solution for this at Valhalla Networks. So, you know, you've told us what the problem is. What do you suggest is part of this solution? And how is Valhalla Network playing a role in this? Yeah, so, you know, talking about the banking system built on alchemy, it's it built on fraud. The whole banking system <laughs> is fraud. And it's, it's fine. It's legal fraud and it's important fraud and mm. it has its place in society, but it is fraud nevertheless because of how banks are creating money. They say it's a deposit, but when you deposit, you're not actually depositing money. It's a loan to the bank. So there's a lot of things going on, a lot of jargon, a lot of legal well, things. I suppose it already is kind of an electronic it's just an electronic timestamp in a way already, isn't it? Oh, is yeah. Is that wrong? No, no, you're 100% right. So this is like the whole, you know, we won't go into CBDCs right now, but the whole PR stunt around CBDCs being new digital currency and all this, people seem to forget that the majority of money that they're using in everyday life is digital money already. It's not a new, all they're mm. doing is, is their PR, you know, uh, putting some PR around it to make it sound all fancy when in fact CBDCs are just a way to control people even more. But anyway, we won't get into that too much. But you're right. Um, digital currency has been around for many years and, and the majority of money is digital. Whereas crypto and, and DeFi and everything like that, you're not actually creating um, fake money because that would be fraud. Like I said, it, it's fraud that banks do it, but it's it's legal fraud. Whereas in crypto, you can't actually do it because it'd be um, illegal fraud. So instead, it's just a, it's just a um, change of value and and. Yes, people see it as alchemy and, and creating value, fake value, but actually it's not. It's just creating something that has a value associated with it. Whether or not that value is accurate is different, but it's not creating new value, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, and, and you seem to have a distinction that's simple, but but in a way it's new. You said there's two types of DeFi. There's yeah. peer-to-peer lending without a third party, which I think you know, is the one we've spoken about most on, on this uh, series. But also you said there's efforts to decentralize the financial system by setting up many small local banks to help small businesses that can't get funding from big banks, all managed by a DAO. Now, some of our first episodes on the UAE Tech Podcast were about, you know, Bretton Woods uh, Central Bank. You've been in the crypto community, so you know all the arguments. And what's kind of interesting about you is that you're saying, yeah, all that stuff is great, but what we really need is, uh, you know, more smaller local banks. So you still want banking and you still want banks, but you're trying to merge it with some of these new technologies. Is that correct? Yeah, so, um, you know, the two types of DeFi, um, I I briefly touched on them at the House of Lords. Uh, You're correct, you've got the, obviously, the DeFi that most people in crypto understand, you know, the DeFi definition that most people in crypto understand, which is peer-to-peer without a financial intermediary, forgive me for the use of that, that term, but it's because most people um, understand what that what that means. So without that third party in the middle in some way, um, and it unlocks, you know, lots of opportunities, lots of potential there, and it's got its place. Uh, and I think DeFi is, is, is fantastic, and it can really help economies, but it's got its place. It cannot... Um, do and it cannot replace the banking system, which is what lots of projects out there seem to believe that they can, and they seem to believe that they, you know that banks aren't important. But again, that becomes that comes down to the misunderstanding of the role banks play in society. You know, like I said, a lot of people think they're just financial intermediaries, but they're not. So, because banks are creators of money and they have this such important role in society, you know, without this new credit being created, you cannot get GDP growth. 
Um, so you need banks. You need a banking system. Otherwise, the whole system will um, will just collapse effectively. If you don't have banks giving out loans, businesses will all go bankrupt. Um, and if you like, the house of cards will, will, will fall. Um, so banks cannot be replaced. What would be better instead is to do what I like to term true DeFi, which is when you take the current financial system and then decentralize it. So rather than trying to do something outside the current financial system, trying to do something different from it and trying to say, we no longer need the financial system, we no longer need banks, which is what some projects seem to be thinking and seem to be doing. Instead, what we're saying is, no, let's use this very powerful banking system, this very important banking system. Let's decentralize it so it helps people and, and have that set up. And how we're doing that is by setting up many small banks. So we're not only decentralizing the front end, by setting up these many small local banks, which helps these small businesses. As I said, the small banks are the ones which are lending productively to the real economy. They're lending to these small businesses in their local communities. They're giving back and they're actually forming these relationships. So we're going to set up thousands of these small banks all across the world. But then we're actually decentralizing the back end as well by having the ownership of this banking system in the hands of people through a DAO. So it's got the decentralized front end and the, the banks themselves and the relationships that they have. And then you've got the decentralized sort of governance of the whole ownership of it. Thanks. That's that's a really good way of describing it for the audience. So I want to ask you about two things there, you know, community banks and DAOs. Um, so I guess let's begin with, you know, you have experience in community banks. Um, you guys have written a lot on the advantages and importance of community banks and the role they play. This is a new discussion for us. So if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, um, this distinction between kind of the, the big evil corporate banks and the community <laughs> bank, uh, you know, and and why is it that a community bank can be more trusted than some of the larger players? That, that would be really interesting. So community banks, for a lot of people listening, they might have heard this term before. It's not a new thing. Uh, community banks have been around in several countries. Uh, they were in the UK many years ago uh, before they were all bought up and uh, and moved into the big banks. Um, but they're very successful in Germany through the Sparkassen, um banking system, where there's sort of 1,500 community banks in Germany um, that exist to serve the local community and the small businesses that operate in that community. Now, there must be something right about this system because not one community bank in 2007-2008 crisis, not one community bank in Germany required any taxpayer bailout. So there must be something they're doing right. So the big banks, as I mentioned, there's this, this different credit creation, but let's try to um, let's try to, to go on to something else to know. <laughs> um, so the big banks tend to have this um, focus on growing their balance sheet and focus on the bottom line. Now, it's not their fault. If the shareholders say to them, we want you to grow by 5% um, over the next year, what's easier? Setting up and giving out you know, 10,000, 100,000 small business loans, all at 10,000 euros each? Or is it easier to give a few very, very large loans to these big PE companies that come across, have a reputation and have the directors there who have well-known? Obviously, it's very easy to just lend out to the big players. So it's not really the big bank's fault. Um, whereas the small businesses as, and the small banks uh, that, that, that cater for them, the small banks, they don't have the same um, profit orientation. They don't have the same goals as the big banks. 
They are still profitable, but they're just not operating in a way where the profit is really the only thing that matters. They operate in a way where they want to form these relationships with these small businesses. They want to make sure that they're actually supporting them and helping these small businesses grow. And they are, you know, an active and valued member of the local community. So these community banks, the way ours will be set up and run is they'll be geographically restricted, which is really important because it forces the local bankers to work with and support the local businesses. If they weren't geographically restricted, it would mean that the bankers could cherry pick. They could go and say, oh, well, we like the small businesses in that town and we like a few over there and we like the few over there and we'll leave out all these other ones which are a little bit trickier for us. Whereas by restricting the bank and saying, no, you've got to work with the businesses in this area, it forces the bankers to you know, work a bit harder. <laughs> Look at the solutions to help these small businesses grow. Now, it doesn't mean do risky lending or anything like that. You know, Some people have this misunderstanding that small businesses are riskier. They aren't. Actually, most of the time, they are less risky um, because they're productive. So they're using the money to create new income streams. Normally, you require um, a loan to have over collateral attached to it. So the small business, in the event of default, the banks can almost always get the majority of their, um, of their loan back through the collateral. Um, and over time, these small businesses and the bankers form this relationship, a really good relationship, where it can be multi-generational, where the father owned the business before him and, and the grandfather owned the business and all of them knew the local bank and they've all formed this relationship with the local bank. What this means is, is there's a moral obligation as well to repay this loan, which is really important because then the small businesses are less likely to do something a bit dodgy or, or do something which could hurt the bank because they know how important the bank is for the local community. And then all this is good stuff, but how can we improve it? Well, why don't we set it so that part of the bank is owned by a charity foundation as well? So we set up a local charity foundation with that community bank that then reinvest a portion of the dividends and a portion of the profit the bank makes into local community initiative, sport development programs, education, etc. So it's giving back to the community as well. And then the other 75% of the bank will be owned by the Dow Foundation, by the Valhalla Network Foundation that we're setting up in Liechtenstein, that the token holders will then govern. So then the profits are coming up and it's being um, it's being used for uh, positive um, positive reasons. It's not just being sucked out and sent overseas to the fat cats or sent to London to the fat cats and people who own these huge banks um, to to profit from the economy collapsing effectively. So it's kind of an elegant idea, really, you know, and and refreshing in a way because DeFi and and a lot of the crypto community are also always looking at the technological solutions, and that usually comes first. But you're really also looking at kind of front end organizational solution where, you know, you're deconstructing and distributing physical banks in local communities around a geographic area and doing that for local communities where it can work. So you're kind of taking the existing infrastructure that, that the existing that we all know and breaking that down. Presumably the local community would be able to walk into some of these banks. Are they physical locations? Yeah. So so yeah, there's so... that there as well, which a lot of people predicted would would not be there in the future. Yeah, so um, small businesses, the you know the majority of them don't want everything to be online. Um, they don't want it all to be digital. At the end of the day, you don't form fantastic relationships just through a digital 
um, digital presence. There has to be something in person and there has to be something available in person so these small business owners can go in and sit down with the banker and talk through um, their business, talk through the problems that they're facing and the, and the potential solutions. So each of our community banks will be a traditional bank. It will have brick and mortar there for those local businesses to go in. Um, I can relate to that. I think like yeah. the, the you know the the super service for for like a lot of businesses right now is just having a human being to answer the phone. Hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it seems like and it's a simple the same thing one, to then, do as well. Yeah. You know, you go into the local bank; it's the same person you're speaking to. It's your it's your um, local bankers, so you know them. And, and in off times, it will just be one person or, or two people that you end up speaking to all the time. It won't be, you know, any one of thousands of of call center employees, something like that. Um, okay, so so that makes sense. So let's talk about the DAO infrastructure. So let's talk mm-hmm. about the the kind of tech back end. As I'm sure you know, um, a lot of people in the Web3 community have been working on DAOs. There's clearly a lot of promise there, but there's also been a lot of high profile problems when it comes to execution, particularly when it comes to distributing finances and getting people paid. Um you know, there was the Constitution DAO project, which fell apart. There's a couple of others um, where you've had kind of um, historians or artists or creators who've released a product. And then, you know, there have been issues with smart contracts. So what do you think about that challenge? What What is your roadmap for creating the DAO and how do you envisage that working? Uh, so I might have misunderstood the question, so apologies if I have. Um so our roadmap is is over the next year, um, the infrastructure will be built by our internal tech guys um, who are geniuses <laughs> and I don't understand uh, the majority of, of, of what they do um, because they, they're much smarter than me when it comes to the technical side of things. Um, they're building everything out. We're not just using off-the-shelf stuff because in our case, a lot of things are different. We're combining the most regulated industry with the least regulated industry. Um, you know it's important to remember that our governance token holders as well it's not it's not a security there's no um, expectation of profit that can come from that Um, however they can be paid for work so through governing the DAO they can receive rewards um, that are backed by the real world cash flows real world Uh, cash flows from the banking system so Mm. all these banks pay dividends into the Valhalla Network Foundation and then governance token holders are deciding how best to use these resources to, to ultimately um, fulfill the mission of, of setting up thousands of these community banks. Um, and obviously, as more banks join this network and, and grow, more dividends flow up, so it's self-sufficient. Um, and how much of it to be used to, to pay um, token holders for their work of go- governing the down and stuff like that. Um, but it's... It's not something, you know, some people see DAOs as a non-legal entity, something that is above um, the current sort of legal infrastructure that's in place. I personally don't. I see the whole system, the foundation and the token holders and the voting rights and the the way that works as the DAO. I see that as the decentralized organization. Um, I don't see it as this fictitious imaginary thing above the foundation. The foundation's the legal vehicle. You need something. You need a legal entity in order to be able to interact with real-world companies. And it's the mm. foundation that ultimately owns the banks. They and own I, the banks through shares. And I know there has been some kind of talk in the legal community on 
the extent to which DAOs might have legal personality in the future. But, you know, what is the big picture on, on the DAOs? Are you trying to give everyone who's involved in these local community banks, be running them presumably, voting rights and also some kind of accountability, accountability and transparency? Because as you said, you know, you're you're working in a very regulated industry, but you're also using a kind of pipeline that makes sense in tokenization, but isn't that regulated. So I guess that in the DAO, that's where some of the magic with, with Valhalla Network will work. So are there any case studies that you've looked at or are there any models um, similar to this that you think are, are something that you're going to borrow or implement? So it's important to know that um, the, the token holders are not governing the banks. They're governing the foundation that owns the banks. Okay, so It's really important because they're not allowed to govern the banks. The banks should be governed by the bankers, by the local bankers, the people who are working and are regulated, have experience at managing and growing a bank. And the reason for this is because um, they have an important role. If the bank collapses and stuff like that, obviously it hurts businesses, it hurts the deposit, um, the people who deposit money at the bank as well. So they need to be experienced and know what they're doing. So banks are run by the bankers. This is something that we would not want to change. And this is something that the regulators would never allow to change either. It has to be like this. However, the foundation is the shareholder of the bank and the token holders are governing that shareholding body, that foundation. Um, so the everyday running of the bank, each bank is its own entity. It's a separate entity from the Dow Foundation. Um, it's got its own balance sheet. It's got its own bankers managing the bank. Um, so we don't envisage just giving tokens to um, to the bank staff or anything like that, because unless they want to join the system and join the DAO and join the whole governing body of this banking system that we're creating, there's no reason for them to have it. They don't need the tokens in order to manage the bank. They don't need the tokens in order to do their day-to-day -day business at all. Um, so it's not quite like that. In terms of the foundation and, and how that will work and the and the votes, there are examples out there. Um, we're not the first that are combining proposals with a foundation. Um, it will be, you know, a, a director's in place on the foundation that has to be there again um, to represent the foundation through legal matters and be responsible if the foundation does anything that breaches laws and, and regulations. They are answerable to the token holders and unless there's a compliance or legal reason they have to fulfill the wishes of the token holders and they have to um they have to effectively act as the proposals that have been passed by the token holders i hope that sort of answered your question it does <laughs> it does yeah so that that is really interesting and um, i guess you know there's a couple of things there so do you think because we're going back to the original point right which i think you know, there's so much to talk about there on what is wrong with existing banking. And I guess one of the problems with these giant banks is if you're, even if you're a local community, putting aside, if you're an individual, you know, person, there's almost no transparency or access or accountability from these large banks. There's very rarely someone that you can even speak to, um, you know, face to face. So do you think this system will play a role in increasing trust in increasing accountability i guess that's the first question and then the second question is i wanted to ask you about cbdc's actually 
Okay. Um, so increasing trust and accountability. Um, so I'll just make a note so I remember what to talk about. Um, so the, the DAO itself and the governance of that, the fact that that is decentralized, the fact that it's on-chain and proposals are on-chain, everyone can see what's going on, really. Mm, yeah. In terms of the governing of the shareholder, the majority shareholder of these banks, the governing of that is the people. That obviously increases trust and accountability in, in that. However, because the banks are answerable to the foundation, because the foundation owns them, it should increase um, trust and accountability in the banking system that we're setting up because yeah. ultimately the token holders, if they're not happy and they, if they have questions or if they want, they can set up more banks or, or, you know, they can decide how the mission grows, how everything moves forward and they can put proposals in that the directors of the foundation then have to represent at board meetings, et cetera, with the banks. It should increase trust and accountability. Yeah. Um, in terms of the actual community banks that we set up, because they're very small and they're not these large players with huge balance sheets who are very compartmentalized, different departments don't speak to each other. In community banks, there tends to be a lot of trust anyway because of the fact that they're so small and the bankers have a very close relationship with the small businesses. So although it might not seem like it increases trust and accountability for those who are not being um, who are not customers of these community banks, the customers of the community banks will feel that increased trust and accountability because of the fact that they're working with the same people, they know who they are, they've formed that relationship, they've been working with them for several years, you know, after a bit of time as well. It takes time, it's not something that's instant. But unlike a big bank, it's very hard to form those relationships with a big bank. Um, you know, they don't really seem to care about you. Um, if you're a small business, you can't get even in the front door, um, let alone get any loans or anything. Yeah, so no, I guess... Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Sorry, sorry for interrupt, but but I think that's one of the things technology was meant to solve, right? Technology was meant to be able to give us more access, give us more information, help us build more trust, and that digitalization often hasn't provided that. And you know, yeah, that is one of the things. <laughs> it's it it hasn't done that, and that's one of the things that you know the blockchain community often say they're out to solve. So, you know, the next thing I wanted to ask you about was let's say this all goes ahead and, and hopefully it will. And you've got this network of, of small banks and then we have CBDCs on the horizon and there's a centralized digital currency that we yes. all have to use. What are the dangers of that? But also what are the implications of it for, for your, for Valhalla network? Yeah. Um, so CBDCs, um, and it's really important for everyone to understand this, they are the greatest risk to everyone, they're the greatest risk to everyone's freedoms. People are brought into them because of the fact that, again, this PR around it, oh, it's something new, oh, it's using blockchain technology or whatever. But um, it's it's not the same as as um, the layer ones that we know of it or anything like that, it's not. It's, got, it's programmable and it is centralized control by the central banks. Um, what this means is if, if you are being forced to use CBDCs and may have been programmed in such a way and the central planners and the central banks decide that they want people to stop um, eating meat, let's say, or stop traveling outside of, you know, 15 miles from their home, they've traveled too much this year or something like that. Because it's CBDCs can be connected and programmed, so it's connected to your social credit score or whatever they like it to be connected to, it means 
at the will of a central bank and at the will of the central planners, they can stop you for paying for stuff. They can stop you from um, being able to buy a plane ticket using your CBDC. It just won't work. Or they can just apply a very harsh penalty to your account and, and make it so your CBDC, um, your account effectively is, is, is drained of value. They can do whatever they like. And it will mean that people are enslaved to be central planners. Now, at the moment, luckily, the current digital pound and the digital dollar and the digital euro, etc., they're not programmable. They are digital, but they're not linked to any social credit score or linked to your freedoms or anything like that. But CBDCs can be and they will be linked to all that. Look at China. You know, China is a great example of, of what the world is going to move to, because that's what the central planners want it to be. They want full control. They want these 15 minute cities that are now being told everywhere, you know, this 15 minute city. What that is, is, is just a way to reduce your freedoms again. I don't know why people buy into it and think that it's a good thing. But all this stuff that they're doing is around reducing your freedom, having more surveillance over what you're doing and more control over your life. CBDCs is the way to enslave you financially so that all the other things they want to do can be linked to your bank account and your finances. Now, they are terrible. Um, hopefully, more and more people will wake up to the implications CBDCs will have on their life. Now, some people will just say, oh, I don't care. You know, I don't really do much. I just, you know, I do this. I'm happy. I've got my family around me. <laughs> you know, there's there's people like that. Fine. However, they are then just living in an enslaved state. You know, they're doing what they're told and they are content being like that. I don't know why anyone would be content being like that, but they are. And they're obviously not thinking about future genera generations as well, which are going to grow up into this state. Um, so hopefully more people will become aware of, of this and start protesting it, start speaking up about the um, the atrocities of CBDC. And funnily enough, you know, you, you, you bump into someone at one of these Web3 events and they say something about CBDCs. Oh, I've been working with XYZ on CBDCs. And I, I always just immediately, I'm very honest with them. And I just say, you know, what are you doing? And, you know, I have no, you know, I've really no interest in, 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 in continuing this because you have, you are working to destroy, um, destroy everyone's freedoms. Um, but a lot of people tend to agree with me. I'll, I'll speak to people and they'll say, yeah, I don't know why they're at this event because the ethos is not web free. CBDCs is not web free. Web free is around decentralization. It's around, again, that trust. It's around everything being um, visible, transparent, accountable, um, bringing people together to common goals as well and, and, commun and communities on these projects working together on, on, on common goals. CBDCs is nothing like that. So I'm yeah. not sure how people can put the two in the same bucket. Yeah, and we've we've spoken to uh, some finance and fintech guys and put that argument to them. You know, we've said, you know, some of our speakers have said this and they've said, yeah, you're right. Um, it's definitely those are legitimate threats. Um, if we don't work on this, somebody else will. And <laughs> this is coming whether we like it or not. And all we can do is try to mitigate those threats, but you have legitimate points. Um, but at the same time, you know, these guys making these criticisms, they're, they're kind of pirates too, and they don't have KYC and AML, and only governments can be trusted to provide these services. So <laughs> it, it really goes back to almost the beginnings of our entire series where we had a very um, good debate um, on, you know, the future of, 
of of cash, the future of financial value. And on the one hand, we had um, people like John McAfee, who was saying the blockchain is, you know, a civilizational revolution that will set people free. Free on on the other hand, we had public policy analysts, including people such as myself, who said, who would argue, you know, read a history book, um, governments. And particularly when it comes to, you know, two areas, finance or security, um, have always been historically very quick to act in their best interests and very quick to innovate where their life is on the line. And, you know, when we're talking about the financial industries, it it, it is, you know, a massively important area, you know, for the, for the future of um, states and civilization and cultures in general. So we'll just have to see. Um, I know Snowden agrees with you. Um, so, so that's, you know, some, some, <laughs> maybe some I should, pretty... uh, reach Sorry. out to him, get him to yeah. join the yeah. network. Yeah. I, I think there's quite, I think there's quite a few people writing about this and, you know, we'll just have to see whether, whether we end up with Bitcoin or CBDCs or, um, hopefully it's, it's a more distributed. It's, no, it's not going to be Bitcoin. Um, people who believe that Bitcoin can, I think Bitcoin has its place. Um, it has its, its, its role and it certainly can help economies. But why would anyone believe the central planners will ever allow Bitcoin to replace? And like I said, you don't. People shouldn't want that anyway. They shouldn't want Bitcoin to succeed because, like I said, banks are crucial for the economy. And if Bitcoin succeeded, that would mean that no one was depositing funds with banks. Um, banks weren't able to, unless you know there was a whole and it's potentially that a whole rules are changed and Bitcoin can be deposited with banks and then banks can create something that's like Bitcoin and can be mingled with their balance sheet. But anyway, um, we have actually, think- so we actually have, have covered this. What we ended up with was one of our speakers, Anthem Hayek, um, the adopted son of uh, a very famous gold baron in the United States saying what we'll end up with is a multipolar stateless global world with a single unified digital currency on the blockchain that looks a lot like bitcoin and there will be no <laughs> yeah and he believed that he thought there'd be well, a as well you know um it's it's all a debate and um i we we should get you on with with anthem at some point because i think if you said banks are doing a good job that would that would also lead to a two-way fierce debate yeah. um but you know i your your structure in local uh, in regard to local community banking is fascinating. By the way, it's also a fascinating case study in regard to the developing world. I'm sorry we didn't have time to discuss that today, but I know there are some really interesting projects on local banking using Web three and tokenization in the developing world, um, and that might be one that we can get you on an episode. Uh, in regard to that in the would future. be that would be really interesting. Yeah, and John, just yeah. briefly, I, I forgot to answer your point about CBDCs and how it impact us in terms of the banks that we're setting up. Um, no one really knows, you know, no one knows the future and how it will work. The way I see it, and, and there's people on different sides of this debate and everything. Some people see it as the central planners want to destroy the whole financial system, the whole banking system. And then people who look at that and think, well, you guys are risky then. The way I see it is, well, guess what? If they destroy the whole banking system, the whole financial system, all of your investments are going to go to zero. <laughs> it's not just the banks that are going to collapse. Everything is going to collapse. Um, it's it's all going to be a huge change. Um, it's, it's going to be a massive moment in history. Um, I don't think that's what's going to happen. 
I think if they bring in CBDCs, it'll be something where it's like a hybrid approach where it works with the current banking system. Because the big banks also, they're not going to let, if they know that CBDCs are going to destroy them and hurt them, you know, they're powerful. You know, they, they are answerable to a regulator, but they are powerful together. And they're not going to let it happen. They're not just going to lie back and let these regulators and stuff walk all over them to destroy everything they've built up and everything. Um, so I don't see that happening. I think CBDCs will come in if they do. I'm hoping they won't, and I, I'm protesting strongly that they don't, but let's say they do. Um, I think it will be one which works with the current banking system as it is. It won't destroy us in any sense, because if it destroyed, like the only way it would destroy us is if it destroyed the whole system, and I don't think it's going to destroy the system. Um, and banks would have to incorporate and work with CBDCs and and make sure the tech that they're using and everything is is how CBDCs need to work. But that's all I think will happen if they come in on the banking system. Um, I don't think it will just be the whole thing collapses and everyone um, starts starts uh, wondering what the point of life is. <laughs> so no zombie apocalypse, and it looks like the bankers just might survive after all. I oh, think so. I you. think so. Thank you so much for your time on the UAE Tech <laughs> Podcast. Sponsor information. The UAE Tech Podcast is distributed by Alboweba Business free of charge. To sponsor a single episode or a series of themed episodes, please contact our editorial team or download a sponsorship press pack. Sponsors receive an article on Alboweba Business, syndication distribution on Alboweba Syndicate, email direct marketing across the region, and brand inclusion across all podcast marketing design, audio, and video formats. Alboweba is not a PR company, and we do retain editorial discretion and quality control as an independent publisher. Companies looking to support a dialogue on technological transformation in the UAE are encouraged to contact our team.